Um, I want to encourage you um, to turn with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, as we begin, I just want to say um, what a gift it is to get to be in the room with you and to hear your voices. It's a gift to me, and I'm thankful for it. And we have been walking our way through Peter's letter, a letter that he writes to some struggling and suffering Christians. They're in what is modern-day Turkey in a region of Galatia, cities like Pontus and and Bithynia and Cappadocia. These are all sort of cities slash regions in modern-day Turkey. These Christians are struggling. They're suffering. The tide has turned against them, so to speak, in public opinion. Um, They need a word in their suffering that would remind them of the living hope that they have in Jesus. And that's what Peter writes. So we're going to take a look at verses 7 to 11. I want to encourage you to listen carefully to these words from the Apostle Peter, written by God's Spirit, inspired by His Spirit for you and for me. I'm going to read them slowly so you can hear them carefully. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, at the reading of your word, we respond by saying thanks be to God as an acknowledgement that we need you, Lord, more than we need food to eat. We need true food, Lord Jesus. We need true drink, and that is what you provide. So we ask by the power of your spirit now and your kindness and in your mercy, would you feed us, nourish us, Lord, correct us, uncover things. Lord, we stir up our hope in our Lord Jesus, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you guys know, I am a dad to young children. We have Henry, who's nine. We have Leland, who's six. And we have Millie, who is four today. And because... I'm a dad to young children. Um, This means, among other things, that I give lots of instructions. Because that's part of what it means to be a parent. 
And it's also possible that because I give lots of instruction, I give lots of correction. And it's also possible that a lot of the correction that I give is in the form of prohibition. Like I'm prohibiting things left and right all the time. For example, don't do that. Don't do that. Like the dog doesn't like that. Don't do that. Stop aggravating her. Nope, you can't actually eat that right now. Nope, nope, still no, Mm -mm. nope. Don't do that, don't do this. And it's interesting that my children, when given prohibitions, they most always answer back to me with a very particular reply. And it's been since they were little, and it's interesting to me. Whenever I tell them not to do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, they always say back to me, well, but what can we do instead? See, it's like even my children pick up on this basic human instinct. And it's that we don't just need prohibitions, though we need those. In addition to that, we need aims. We need something to actually positively go for, not just stuff to try to avoid. Think for a second about Adam and Eve in the garden. Of course, there's the prohibition. There's a prohibition. Do not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden because if you do, you will surely die. But if you remember right before that, there was a name. You can eat of every tree in this garden. There was an aim. The goal for the Lord in that moment was life. You can live. A pastor of another generation talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. The idea that if there is something lodged in our hearts that is sinful, it's usually not enough to just try to not do that thing. But what we need instead is we need a new affection, a new aim, a new, new something to run toward, and that would help expel the power of sin. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because I think it's a really good way to think about Peter's words here in the text that I just read. If you remember last week, Peter was saying, there was a time where you chased after the ways of the Gentiles, sensuality, passions, licentiousness, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And he gave prohibitions. Don't do those things. But in this text, you can almost just hear his readers say, but Peter, what can we do instead? And he answers, Take up self-control, sober-mindedness, earnest love, hospitality, using your words a certain way, serving in a certain way, and ultimately to the end that God is glorified. Now, here's the main thing I think Peter is trying to get at in this passage. It's the main thing I think you're supposed to hear tonight. Okay, I don't want you to miss it. I think what Peter is trying to get his hearers to to see tonight and in this text is that living for Jesus's glory is enormously richer, enormously richer than living for 
ourselves. Like it's not even close. It's infinitely better. Now to, to get across that idea, um, I want to do two things. I want to I define the terms here. When Peter is using a word like a phrase like self-controlled, sober-minded, earnest love, what, what, is, what does he mean in the New Testament sense? And then after that, I want to take a moment and try to apply this to the tender places in your heart and ultimately hold out the hope of Jesus to you. So that is how we will proceed. Would you look with me at verse seven? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Peter is going to hinge his instruction here upon this understanding that the end of all things is at hand, okay? So in other words, for his hearers to grasp a hold of his instructions, they have to understand something about the situation and the time in which they live. What does he mean when he says the end of all things is at hand? Well, he likely means two things, okay? First of all, he might mean something temporal having to do with time that the end of all things is at hand, like, like the time of God's redemptive work to be finished and complete. That time is upon us or them. Like the end of all things has arrived. Now you might say, well, they got that wrong because that was 2000 years ago. And I'd say back to you, no, 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 no. See, the Bible understands time in really two phases. Phase one is the old age, the old, the former. Because I'm facing you, I should probably point that way, right? The old age, okay, the former times. And then the Bible understands the second time, which is the age that is to come, the age of Christ's kingdom, the age of the time in which Jesus is making all things new and right, the new age, the age of his kingdom. And what Peter wants his hearers to know is that they are living in that second half of history. Okay, if you're a sports fan, it's a way of Peter saying we're in the second half here, okay? Which is supposed to signal you that it's important. It's an important moment. He wants them to be aware of their time. Now, he also probably means it not just temporally, like time-related, but having to do with, with the other word, the word end, you know, the, the other idea that the word end signifies in the New Testament, that's the idea of a goal. So the end, the scriptures teach that Jesus is the end, that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. He is the, the end, meaning the aim, the goal of all things. So what Peter's trying to say is everything that we've been living for through all the precious covenant promises of God for now and all time have now find their, found their completion in the person of Jesus. And it's time now to live in the living hope that you have in him. Now you might be kind of uh, interested in that and you might be thinking, well, okay, if that's really what kind of situation we're in, like, I wonder how I do that. And that's what Peter tells you. He's going to tell you the practices that are in keeping with living in that time or in that moment. 
So look at the first one. The end of all things is hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, if you remember, the prohibition in the last text was to not give yourself to drunkenness. Okay, and the opposite of that would be sober-mindedness. In the text before, don't give yourself to kind of unchecked sinful impulses. The opposite of that, the thing to run after, the thing to do instead is to give yourself to self-control. And see, the problem with the problem with drunkenness as an example, the problem with drunkenness is that you can't actually be engaged and present to the things that matter most when you're drunk. You, you can't think clearly. When you're in the grip of sin, for example, you can't actually be engaged to the things that matter most because sin chokes the life out of you. You can't be there. You can't be present. And what Peter is calling on is to take up self-control and sober-mindedness so you can, for lack of a better term, be there, be in the moment. See, you and I, and maybe it's just me, our tendency is to escape, 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 escape. When something hard happens, hide away from it. When something difficult happens, run to this thing instead. When something begins to make us fearful, we, we, we will take up things to escape, to escape. But can you imagine being so free, being so unspeakably free that you didn't feel like you had to run away, but you could be there present, engaged. So verse eight, the second thing. Above all, this is Peter's way of saying, if you don't hear anything else, above all, above all things, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another earnestly. Another translation might say, love one another fervently. In the New Testament sense, it's enthusiastically, it's passionately, it's a driven, relentless, keep coming after it kind of love. Love earnestly. Now, when we explored this text earlier in the year, Jason Little, one of our elders, preached it. And I want to just underline something that he, he made plain that day. And that's that loving one another is really hard. Loving is painful. It's costly. We might say it drains you. To love one another earnestly really takes something out of you. If it were easy, he would not have to encourage to keep doing it. Just, try, just keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on. We have to be spurred toward love because love isn't easy. And what this text is calling for is for you to love fervently, passionately, earnestly. Perhaps even someone you don't necessarily care for that much. Some part, perhaps somebody you don't even know that much. Like you belong to this church family and there could be someone in this room and you've never met them before. And what Peter is literally saying here is to chase love earnestly that person.
See, this is kind of opposite of what our world teaches about love, right? Our world defines love kind of like this, okay? In our world's understanding of love, love is essentially approving of everything someone does. And if you stop approving of what that person does, then you can just stop loving them and move on. Y'all, there is a person who loves me more than anyone else in this entire universe. And she does not approve of everything that I do. You can probably take a guess at who that person is. Um, her, her name rhymes with Sandy, okay? <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> Since love covers a multitude of sins, this is sober. But, but love, earnest love, can bear pain. It can bear mistakes. It can bear screw-ups. It creates the space to be able to look at somebody and say to them, I was wrong. And I'm so sorry. And that the kind of love with which Christ loves that we can love one another with earnestly has a chance to cover those moments. Of course, our tendency is to curve in on ourselves, to not love earnestly, to withhold love. Perhaps this is because of selfishness, often it's because of woundedness. But our tendency is to to not do that, instead to curve in on ourselves. But can you imagine, can you imagine not having to live like this, but to be able to live like this, alive, present, engaged, free, not having to hide. Can you imagine that? Well, Peter wants you to imagine that. I mean, aren't we just so self-protective that we just curve in on ourselves? It's understandable, but there's a deeper invitation here. Let's look at this next one. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, in the ancient world, hospitality was critical. There wasn't a hotel everywhere. People had to rely on the kindness of strangers to strangers. And Christian communities in particular were particularly good at that. They were particularly good at taking in other Christians when they came to a town. But but they were also called and they also practiced and this text also teaches them to love and take in even people outside of their community of faith. Now, when I heard the word hospitality, when I was a kid, I used to think it meant that you had to cook something amazing and you were supposed to have like an amazing house that was very big that you could host these like fancy dinners that like, you know, people could take pictures of. That's what I thought hospitality was. And I lived in like a 600 square foot apartment. But that's a home. And see, that's, that's the idea of hospitality. It's, it's not about having a big house or being able to cook great, but it's about being able to say in effect that what I have is yours. Come into my space. By, by automatically, automatically, the food in my fridge is yours. 
the, the drinks are yours. Uh, even, even more radically, even more crazy, listen to this, you're not gonna believe it. Even more radically, the time that I have belongs to you. Isn't that harder for us than our money? But it's also money. It's also tools. It's, it's whatever you have now is yours automatically by assumption. I'm inviting you into my life. It's just a baseline assumption. That's what it means to show hospitality to one another. And then Peter adds without grumbling. And I was totally there until that point, right? Because I want to do those things, but I also want to be bitter about it on the inside. And I want to be frustrated when people don't reciprocate for me. Y'all, in the early days at Grace Fellowship, um, which I don't say that as if it's all over, but I just, you know, Mandy and I were having a lot of things over to our house and um, our, a lot of people over to our house as church things were unfolding and we were doing these things and putting together stuff. But, but the whole time leading up to it, we were stressed and frustrated because we were trying to run around to scramble to make everything happen for everybody. And like this, the, like inside my house is like a war zone. And it's like in those early days, especially in like our, our home group, it's like literally like it's an insane thing. And then all of a sudden it's like knock, knock, knock. And it's like, hey, y'all, so glad you're here. Look at us show hospitality for you. And see, hospitality is about inviting people into that. Just inviting them into it because it's fine. Inviting people into the life you actually live, not the pretend life, the hypothetical you, but inviting people into the life you actually live. See, when we're showing hospitality, but we're frustrated about it and griping about it, complaining about it, then it could be an indication that it's not a gift for them, but it's more about something in us. Hospitality is not having your stuff together. It's about inviting people into who you are and giving yourself away for them. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God's grace is varied. It's multifaceted. There's so many gifts of God's grace in this room. He goes on to say, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, likely Peter is mentioning two kinds of people in the Christian community, one who speaks, perhaps someone who has a leadership role of some kind, okay? Um, what Peter's challenging this person, this leader, to use the words carefully, like in a world that denigrates words and words don't mean anything, Peter's challenging you and I to use words in responsible ways. As if we we're speaking God's words. As one who serves, who serves by the strength that God supplies. He's imagining another person in the Christian community who has some kind of service role, but for them to serve not in their own strength, but in God's strength. Here's the deal. If you want to serve in your own strength, here's the thing, it will go well for you at first, and you'll be left so empty. Trust me, I would know. But can you imagine 
I mean, can you imagine not so much watching out for your own, grasping and clinging to your own stuff, but being able to be open and hospitable? Can you imagine living that way? And then can you imagine, can you imagine not serving in your own strength, not running your mouth about empty things, but can you imagine using your words and using your limbs for others? Can you imagine feeling so free? This is the point at which I want to aim it at your heart because that's what Peter does. Look what Peter says. Whoever speaks is the one who speaks of the oracles of God. Whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See, what Peter is saying is that there is a great aim to your life. And that aim is God's glory. See, the word glory in the, in the Bible is a, is a very important idea. And it has to do with weightiness. Okay, weightiness. To say God is glorified, I mean, glorified, Gloriful? Glorious. Glorious. See, I was like, I was like, I don't, I was like, why can't I not get this word? And I knew Katie would be there for me, okay? <laughs> to say God is glorious is to say he's he's weighty. Literally, he's heavy. He's important. And the scriptures teach us when we adopt these practices. Self-control, sober-mindedness, earnest love, hospitality, thought, complaining, serving according to our gifts that Jesus receives a unique glory. Your gifts are not for you. We tend to think our gifts are for our own self-expression. They're not. Your gifts are for others so that God might be glorified. There is an aim to your life, a life that is lived in such a way that makes, puts on display God's heaviness, his significance for the world to see. Can you imagine how free it would feel to live for that end instead of the ends that you and I spend all our time living for. Can you imagine being so free? The reason why I keep asking if you can imagine, if you can imagine, if you can imagine, if you can imagine, because I I want you to hear is that what Peter's trying to get you to see is that is the life you can have. You can take hold of by the power of God's spirit. You can have it. It's there for the taking for you. Jesus on his cross has bought you and redeemed you so that you could live for this. He wouldn't be be encouraging the, the, the reader or the hearer here if it wasn't something they could actually do. But they can. Now to aim this at your heart as we prepare to celebrate this table, I think I want to tell you really two things. Number one, take this as it needs to be applied to your heart. You were made to live for something more. You just were. Secondly, I want to tell you about something I call the head on the pillow thing. And I don't know if this will connect with you. But when my head hits the pillow at night, I don't fall asleep right away. Instead, I sit there and I kind of take it in for a second. Like, you know what I mean by that? Take in the substance of my life. And I know that when my head hits my pillow at night, I don't know any other way to say this. I'm just going to say it. 
sometimes I get weary of being the person that I am. Okay? And I don't mean like my personality type. I mean the sinful things that have a hold of me. Like I see that I happen to be one of the least self-controlled people you'll ever meet. I happen to be extremely foolish, not sober-minded. Okay, I happen to be particularly curved in on myself instead of open to others. I happen to live my life rather for G- than Jesus and his glory for my, myself. I happen to hold on to myself instead of giving it out freely. And I've got some bad reasons and good reasons that I live this way. And by good reasons, I mean I've had wounds. I wonder if you know what I mean by the head hit the pillow and the, the head thing. What this text teaches, okay, what this text teaches is that you and I can do something else instead. Like my children, you got another option. And the beginning of that do something else instead is something the Bible calls repentance. And we talked about it last week. Do you remember last week we talked about the ways of the Gentiles and we talked about the chance to walk a different way. And the scriptures say that we can walk a different way. If you are weary with yourself, the scriptures teach that you can walk another way. And you can take off on that trip right now. And the unspeakably sweet things from God that awaits you on the other side of repentance is too much for one preacher to even begin to describe. you'll feel free and you won't regret it. Let's pray together. Lord, these things are much easier analyzed from a pulpit than embraced. Lord, so if we would be a people who would embrace these things, we acknowledge that that would be a work of your spirit. So that's our prayer, that by the power of your spirit, you would use these words to shape our hearts, we pray. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.